Dear Artistic Director, I know you don't know me. We actually met briefly after the talkback you did with that playwright from that city a few time zones away. Your theater was doing like the 15th production of their play, which was great because I heard many excellent things about the productions one through 14 that occurred all over the country. It was really cool that a theater where we live also got to see the same story that all those other audiences got to see in all those other places. I'm not sure why, but I think it's good when many people experience the same story. It just feels right for some reason. Anyway, why am I writing? Well, I'm a playwright too. Can you believe it? I can practically see your theater from my house and I just thought it'd be nice to get to know each other. I saw on the playbill that many of the actors and designers and directors who work at your theater also live in the area. I haven't seen many local playwrights in your production history. I bet it's because you didn't realize people like me were here in your backyard. Hence this letter. I have such a fun experience whenever I come to see plays at your theater because your productions are always so well done. Last time I was there, I had this wonderful conversation with some other patrons during intermission. They asked me what I did and I told them I was a playwright and they said, Oh wow, you should have your plays done here, at this theater. I laughed and laughed when they said that. They responded, Why is that funny? And I said, Well, it's complicated. There was still like eight minutes left in intermission, so I tried to explain that I was not as well known as the playwright of the play we were there to see that night. These patrons looked at each other quizzically and said, who is the playwright of the play we're here to see tonight? I laughed and laughed and laughed because, as you know, those of us in the theater world know exactly who that playwright is. I thought it was funny, like weird funny or ironic or, I don't know, fascinating that these audience members had no idea who that playwright was. They didn't even seem to care. How funny is that? They just wanted to see good, relevant plays produced well. That is what prompted me to write this letter, because guess what? I have some plays that are relevant. I could walk them to your office today. You know what else? I could also be really helpful in the entire production and marketing process because, as I mentioned, I practically live in your backyard. And you know what else? I'm not the only one. Crazy, right? There's a bunch of us who live in the area and are accessible and lovely and could be really helpful to your marketing endeavors. I get it that sometimes playwrights seem more interesting when they're living several time zones away. You see your colleagues around the country doing their plays and you get a major sense of FOMO. We all understand that feeling because we really know what it feels like to miss out. This whole thing made me think of cronuts. You know, like the croissant donut thing? Years ago, some baker in New York City created a cronut and people went bonkers for it. It launched in New York, and then LA, then Chicago, and so on and so on. Now, cronuts are everywhere. It's pretty cool that every region in the country jumped on the cronut bandwagon because they are delicious. You know what else is delicious? Cheese curds in Wisconsin, hot dogs in Chicago, clam chowder in Boston, green chilies in New Mexico, or lobsters in Maine. So, like, you've got these lobsters, right? They've always been here, and people who live here or visit love them. 
These days, folks can get a Krona any place, but this is the place for lobster. I'm not saying you should have lobsters for every meal, but they are a good and satisfying treat a couple times a year. And the cool thing is, they might all seem alike, but they can come in a lot of different varieties. I actually had some lobster on a pizza once. It was a hybrid. Imagine that. Anyway, this is just me, one of your local cheese curds, <laughs> I mean playwrights, saying hello and letting you know me and a bunch of my friends are out here. We're looking forward to your next season. With love, a playwright. Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak, and I am the host. The Subtext is a monthly podcast where two playwrights chat about our lives, our writing, and what makes us tick. This month, the guest is writer, director, and lover of the Olive Garden, Spencer Davis. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. You can find us on the socials, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and while you're there, rate and review the show while you're listening to this episode, and that'll save you some time later. The subtext is brought to you by American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. I've been making the subtext monthly for American Theatre since January of 2018, so there are many back episodes in the archives for you to dig into, if you like what you hear, here. I also highly recommend another American Theatre podcast called Theatrical Mustang, an independently produced podcast from actor, writer, activist Woodzik. Each month, they bring you interviews with unbridled talent and cultural trailblazers from across the country. Okay, back to Spencer Davis. He really does love the Olive Garden, and I'm kicking myself for not asking about this during our conversation. Spencer is a writer and director born and raised in Arkansas and currently based in Chicago. Recently, he was the 2020-2021 Michael Maggio Directing Fellow at the Goodman Theater, where he served as associate director to Tony Award winner Bob Falls on the live stream production of The Sound Inside. He's also currently assistant directing at the, Good, uh, at the Goodman with Bob Falls on Swing State, the latest play by Rebecca Gilman, who happened to appear on the subtext in the winter of 2019. Spencer's newest play, A Million Tiny Pieces, was written for South Coast Rep as part of the Elizabeth George Commission and was featured in both the Pacific Playwrights Festival and the Colorado New Play Festival. Other honors include the M. Elizabeth Osborne Award from the American Theater Critics Association, the B. Iden Payne Best Directing Award, and the Joseph Jefferson Award for Best Director, for which he's been nominated three times. And he's been named a finalist for the Harold and Mimi Steinberg uh, ATCA New Play Award, ATCA, American Theater Critics Association New Play Award. There we go. I figured it out. This conversation was a blast. We were sitting outside on some bleachers next to a football field, and about halfway through our conversation, players started to arrive for uh, practice. So we picked up and moved to another location. We never stopped recording, so you will hear, I don't know, like 40 or 45 minutes in, um, we start walking and talking for a bit, but I don't even think you can tell that much. Here's my conversation with Spencer Davis, recorded in July of 2022 in Chicago. 
are we recording right now? Are we? Are we? Oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, is this the subtext? This is it. <laughs> this is. Oh wow, it's so it's so warm. It's, I didn't. Can't you tell the difference? Oh my gosh, here we are. <laughs> I was wondering. It suddenly got brighter, and I was like, I think we're in the subtext. We are in the midst of it. Cool. Um, but uh, yeah, I feel the same way. I uh, it's been a journey for me to um, feel comfortable in my own skin doing this, and then yeah. over the past two years, I've been on the other side of the mic. Sure. And. Um, and it was a weird experience. Have you found your own approaches beyond just playwright, but like as an artist, have you found it changing? Have you found your own dials being turned because of things that others have told you? Have, have constantly. things constantly? Yeah, yeah, constantly. Great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I just spoke to Kimberly the other day mm-hmm. in New York, and. That conversation was unlike any that I've ever had. Oh, awesome. On the subtext. And I don't know if uh, that has already come out when people are hearing <laughs> us talking right now. Great. Or if it's going to come out after. I really don't know. i yeah. got to figure that out. Um, but it really it really changed. It changed a lot about the way I, I think of myself as an artist. Uh-huh. And I think, I think that happens a little bit with each person I talk to. Sure. And it really depends on, you know, who it is. Uh, because sometimes the conversations are like anybody who is a regular listener knows that sometimes they're, they can be kind of superficial and biographical mm. about a writer. And that's interesting because <laughs> you're learning things you didn't, maybe you didn't know biographically speaking. Right. But sometimes they'll go into something a little bit, uh, more crafty or sure. Or like in a, in a different sort of like emotional place. Well, as a regular listener myself, like as, as a fan of the subtext, actually, like it, it, it has been so fun to have a resource like yours where I get to hear from the artists themselves and these are folks who write the kind of plays that I I would never even touch right Right, either because of my own lived experience or just like our stylistic differences right I I I remember listening just I think last week I listened to Lynn Nottage and Mm -hmm. then I listened to Tracy Letts and it was just so cool to like both both of their work I just I admire so much for completely different reasons. Mm -hmm. And yet, were I to tackle the same subject matter as them, my play would be so different, even just stylistically, how it's presented. Um, Yeah, yeah. And yet, I learn so much from how they talk about the craft or even just, like, beyond playwriting technique, just, like, self-discipline. You know what I mean? I think it's so... It is so helpful, especially since, you know... Writing in general, but playwriting especially, can be so lonely, right? It is such a solo venture for so long. There's that feeling of, like, you're, you start the next play. A lot of times when it's not a commission, you're writing it for you, and you literally have no idea. One, you don't even know maybe sometimes how your own play ends. Two, once you even finish a draft, you don't know who, who's going to read it. Where it's going to be seen? Will it ever be seen? Is this just going to end up in a? I I don't. I don't have a desk drawer, but I have a really messy desktop. You know what I mean? And like, will it just be another PDF on my desktop? Uh, And and so there is this feeling until you get into until you like pay a group of actors with you know crackers and cookies in your own living room, um, or (laughs) I know you and I have attended readings and like the lobby of a theater that right. was empty at the time. Right, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, 
until you do that, you're all alone. And so I, I think I love what I love about the subtext and what I love about what you do is this idea of, of turning this very solitary art form into a conversation mm-hmm. where there's one, there has to be two, right? Mm-hmm. There are at least two people talking about this thing right now that so oftentimes we're kind of flying solo on. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you... Uh, so you... Okay, you've been in Chicago for how many years now? Twelve. A Twelve. solid dozen. How long... Because I see... I've known you as somebody that's... that's uh, been since I've been here for uh, I moved here in 2017 right um, so what's that five years you're somebody I've always known uh, to be very active and part of a community mm-hmm. you know how long did it take you to to get there <laughs> well you know I so I, I'm gonna go back to my origin story if that's okay just Please. real quick yeah. yeah so like you know I grew up in Northwest Arkansas right and um my dad passed away when he was really young. We, I was three, he was 30, right? So he was, he was a younger man than I am now. I'm 32 now, so like I've outlived my dad, which is a weird feeling. But, yeah. you know, with my dad dying, what, what, there were two side effects. One was my mom, my sister, and I became very close. Like it almost became like a, the three of us were like a bank vault that like it became very difficult for anyone else to crack into. Which became really hard when we started, like, finding significant others, right? And we had to be like, let other people in, for God's sakes. But um, the second side effect of that was, you know, because he had been a short story writer and a comic book artist, uh, my mom immediately was like, the arts are encouraged in this household, right? So there was that feeling of, like, where some of my friends disappointed their parents by not becoming lawyers or doctors, my mom was like, if you don't end up in the arts, I did something wrong, right? So right away, I, I knew I was going to become like an artist of some kind. You know, I grew up in a household where we were always watching television in the healthy way, right? For storytelling reasons. Yeah, yeah. Like the Academy Awards were our Super Bowl, right? Yeah. We loved film. We loved TV. We loved visual storytelling. And I remember watching a sitcom. I'm getting to your question, I promise, at some point. But I remember watching a sitcom I was like four, and I heard the laughter of the studio audience, and that's when I realized my childhood brain was like, wait, 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 this isn't, what I'm watching isn't real? Hold on, are there people watching this? Wait, is this a job? Hold on, can this be my job? And within like an hour, I I remember this so distinctly, within an hour, like I understood what performance and what acting was and my mom filled in the gaps and she was like uh yeah well if you want to pursue that you need to get an agent and I was like I great what's an agent and how do I how do I already 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 this is within an hour of my realizing I'm not even this is not myth making this is this actually happened and I asked my mom I was like what's an agent how do I get one and she's like well I'm your agent and she immediately was like the reason I ended up in theater is because it was the closest thing, right? She knew I had this hunger to perform as an actor, even age four, but we didn't know anybody in film. We didn't know anybody in television. This is back in the, you know, the early 90s in Northwest Arkansas, and, like, theater was just closest. So because of proximity, I immediately fell into theater. Then I fell in love with the idea of, like, sharing a space with the audience that you're performing for, that instant gratification, that instant reaction. We're all on the same wavelength, 
breathing the same air together. Um, Back so when you were start when you were just getting your toe into yeah, the theater world, yeah. were you were you already aware of uh, your dad's history as a writer? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I still in in my if I were were to walk a few blocks to my studio apartment that me and my spouse share right now here in Lakeview, Chicago. I have his old briefcase, and it has typed out pages of a short story he never got published. But as a kid, oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, we my my mom was very much like we're part of keeping your father alive is making you very aware of the work he was in the process of because he was like he was a few months away from launching his own comic book line. Wow. He there are several paintings in our family home that he had like. He painted several illustrations from, like, the Lord of the Rings series that he was, like, going to be submitting to, like, a Lord of the Rings calendar contest that never happened. We have all of these things. So, like, just being surrounded by his work, both finished and unfinished, was always part of my life. Was being a writer something that you felt like was your destiny? Not right away. No, I think I. it's, it's going to sound a little... Um, pretentious but I just knew I was a storyteller right I just I had a feeling you know my dad was like I said a comic book artist a a fiction writer my mom was a journalist and essayist my sister is now a stand-up comic in Nashville and a storyteller and here I am now acting writing directing I think like storytelling was always bound in our DNA I didn't know what form that would take like I drew comics as a kid and stuff you know um but it started, I was an actor, right? And all of that, going back to your question about, hey, h- how did you get involved in the Chicago theater community? Again, going back to my mom's support of the arts, um, as a freshman in high school, my sister just said, I was, in, I was a freshman in college at that point, but my sister in, in high school said to my mom, I want to go study at Second City Chicago. And my mom was like, okay, let's pack up. You're going. Your, your sophomore year of high school, you will be studying at Second City of Chicago. We don't know anybody in this city, but the two of us will go. What's brilliant is she yes-anded yep. your sister yeah, yeah. <laughs> who was trying <laughs> yeah, to yeah. go learn what the hell yes-and was. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And so I was like, like, hell you are. You're not going without me. And so I transferred colleges to the University of Illinois, Chicago. And where were you? I was in this small town in Arkansas called Monticello. Um, it was my goal to, I was like, I just need to go to college and get a degree. I don't care where it's from. I don't care what it's for. I'm just going to get a degree. And then my next goal was I'm going to go to Ada in New York. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the American Academy of what, Dramatic Arts, I yeah. think is what it stands for. That would be really embarrassing if I got that wrong <laughs> right now. But I, that was my next goal. I was like, that is how, because for me... The idea of going to L.A. or coming to Chicago, I didn't even know those were options. I just knew, well, I'm doing theater. New York is theater. Let's go, right? I'm going to graduate from this four-year college, and I'll go to Ada. But the moment my mom was like, we're going to Chicago for a year, I was like, nope, I'm transferring up there with you. Because I just didn't like the idea of them coming to a city we didn't know alone. Mm -hmm. And so I came up here with them. you had massive FOMO. (laughs) I had had massive family-related FOMO. Um, (laughs) And so at... Uh, after a year, my mom and my sister moved back to Arkansas. They had accomplished their mission, and I stayed because it was around, I want to say that was around 
August Osage County at Steppenwolf had really just made its run. Mm -hmm. And and suddenly there was this feeling of like, oh, wow, the, the, the country is paying attention to Chicago. Now, little did I know, it had been paying attention to Chicago for decades. Right. But in my mind, I was like, oh, my gosh, the top echelon. Because, again, at that point, I still had this, like, this glitter surrounding New York, right. you know, yeah. in my scrapbook or whatever. Um, and so I thought, oh, I can actually do that here. But again, I was still an actor. All of that to say, I finally decided to pursue playwriting because here I was, this actor who had been acting since I was four, but nobody in Chicago knew what my credits were. They were all from Arkansas. None of the theaters maybe had recognizable names as far as the Midwest was concerned. And so not only could I not get, like, a callback, I couldn't even get, like, an audition slot mm -hmm. with a lot of people here in town. And I, and for me, I just, if the door is closed, I'm just going to, like, I'm not going to keep knocking. I'm just going to build another door. I'm, I'm going to crawl in through a window. Right. I think a lot of the playwrights you've interviewed have similar origin stories. And so I thought, you know what, what's one thing? I don't need anybody's permission to do. You know, a director needs to be hired. An actor needs to be cast. But a playwright can technically do whatever they want for as long as they want, as long as they're just, like, sitting down at a keyboard. They're, they can accomplish work. They can finish work. Were you reading plays in this time period? Not, not really. Not really. You know, I had, I had read plenty, plenty of plays as an actor, right? Yeah, so I kind of yeah. knew what the format looked like. I immediately was like, I Googled that day, I Googled Chicago playwright, and the first person to come up was a man named Andrew Hinderocker. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, just being this presumptuous little scamp that I was, like, <laughs> I've never said that before in my life, but that, I'm sticking with it. I, I just emailed him, and I was like, hi, Andrew, my name's Spencer. I'm, a, I'm an actor here in town, and I want to start playwriting do you have any suggestions? I think is what I asked him. And to his credit, not only did he respond, but he was very kind about it. And he was like, listen, if you, if that is seriously something you want to pursue, you need to get yourself involved with the Chicago dramatists mm -hmm. here in town. Uh, it's this theater off of Halstead. It's run by Russ Tuttero. I, I think, you know, you could take a class there and they can, you know, teach you all you need to know is basically what, because he had come up through their ranks, as I learned later. And what, what luck, UIC, which is where I was attending college, was a 10-minute walk south of Chicago Dramatist, just by chance. And so I walked up to the front door of Chicago Dramatist, again, totally presumptuous. <laughs> I hit the buzzer outside of the building. A man answered... And I said, hi, my name is Spencer. I, I want to become a playwright. And I was told to come see you all. I'm not even kidding. This is like, I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. So yeah, yeah. I almost like my my ignorance was such a tool. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, yeah. And so I learned at that moment who was answering the intercom, but the artistic director, Russ Tuttero, That's he, he said, come on up. That's fantastic. And for the next hour and a half, we sat in his office. I had no, if I had known what a gift he was giving me, 90 minutes of his time, I, I wouldn't have been able to get a word out. But here I was just like, I don't know anything. I don't know anyone. So I think what what was really ignorance probably came off as like self-confidence. You know what yeah, I mean? Like right. just kind of a real, a, like an ease of self. 
And uh, and he told me in that 90 minutes, hey, listen, you know, write a 10-minute play. We have this festival coming up. Uh, and hey, by the way, if you ever leave us, he was already talking like I was family. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. like, if you ever leave us, it better be for the Goodman Theater because they are the other company here in town uh, that has an incredible new play development program. He's like, so if you ever walk outside of this building to go to another theater, it better be them. <laughs> Which will pay off later on in my career, a decade later, when I'm working with them with the Maggio Directing Fellowship. I don't want to get ahead of our- ourselves, but like, I literally quoted that story a decade later yeah. in my interview for the Maggio Directing Fellowship with the Goodman. And it was just, it, it, yeah. So, I mean, it really, my entrance into playwriting was... Andrew Hinderocker answered an email and Russ Tuttero answered the door and they just like shared a little bit of their experience with me, which as I, as I found out is like very indicative of like Chicago, right? Everybody kind of, someone else brought them up. And so they're more willing to reach down the ladder and pull someone else up like somebody did for them. 100%. When I moved here, I, I had like two contacts Uh and those two contacts became like 12 within a week wow and everybody was like so generous in in meeting with me this like right. this this city the theater and i think i think this it's special to the city but i think theater people in general tend to be more very generous not more but very generous with their time sure um i will say this about chicago it is hard to get your work produced at first it is not hard to get coffee with somebody yeah everyone Coast is willing yeah. to meet you everyone's willing to talk because they recognize somebody did that for me when I knew nothing. Yeah. So why would I not pay it forward? Right. You know, whether it's somebody who's new to the city as like a youngster and they're literally new to the industry. They just got out of college or someone like yourself who, who'd been doing it for, you know, decades of your own. But you were trying to figure out a new ecosystem, whatever right. it is. Everyone's yeah. willing to like talk about it, which again is I, I really credit those two early on Russ and Andrew for treating me like a peer at a time when I knew less than nothing. Yeah. You know? So, so when you first started putting, did you write a 10-minute play for that thing? I did. It was called Minimalistic Men, and it was about, I thought I was so clever, it was about two roommates who, when the play starts, one of them realizes they're in a 10-minute play, Okay. And the other one doesn't. Actually, right. he just knows they're in a play, but they don't realize how long it's going to be. Uh-huh. All he knows is, we are in a play. I have to convince my roommate of this. And all I know is when this play ends, we die. And so the, it was kind of like, without even meaning to, I was like getting into this existential water. I was, but it was a, it was a dark comedy. It was about life and death, but it was also about consent because they're like, Wait, so the words I'm saying, someone else is putting in my mouth, right? And so I was like, I was already playing with the form in like a really self-satisfied, cheeky way. Um, What do you think influenced you looking back on something like that? Honestly, I I think, and I'm sure other actors turned playwrights that you've spoken to have talked about this, but I had read a lot of great plays and been in a lot of great plays. I'd also been in a lot of like not great plays and read a lot of plays that just weren't fun to perform. And I thought to myself, at the very least, every single thing that I write needs to be really fun for the actors. 
I was like, I never want to write dialogue that doesn't fit in the actors' mouths, that isn't fun to say, that isn't fun to listen to. Yeah. So I think right away, just like my own acting background pushed me to like write really exciting dialogue and really exciting premises. Um, so I think that's what inspired me right away. And again, I think part of it was like having not gone to school for this, not knowing what the rules were, I was breaking rules that I didn't even know I was breaking, right? So I, I know I joke about, oh, it was oh, so, so satisfied. I didn't know what wasn't allowed, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I, I actually think that was like a real, a real credit at mm-hmm. some point. I knew how to format a play, but I didn't know what a play wasn't. And I think we're starting to learn, like, there are very few things that a play isn't, you know? Like, a, a play can be a lot of things. Um, and so I just, like, I, I kind of approached it in terms of just, like, Make it fun to perform, and the rest will come. Mm-hmm. I think was my. I think that was my north star early on. So, who were the first people to start giving you like feedback, like talk to you about your work? Yeah, I mean, Chicago Dramatist produced Minimalistic Men in one of their ten-minute festivals, and at the same time, I was getting involved with this as a teaching artist with a theater here in town. The late. American Theater Company. Mm-hmm. They're known for the world premieres of Disgraced and The Humans before those, you know, had their journey nationally and, mm-hmm. and beyond. It became things of legend. Um, but I became involved with ATC, and I want to say my second 10-minute play uh, called The Red Stuff uh, was produced by them. And so already, again, didn't even realize how lucky I was. Here were two theaters very renowned for their new work especially and some of like the top literary managers and and folks who work in development were sitting down with me for note sessions right and so I think through those exercises those 10 minute plays I started learning like here's what's working here's what's not Here's why this is an unsatisfying conclusion you know I mean it, it, it really came down to I almost like I started writing first and then I learned about structure and mm-hmm. then I learned about dialogue then I learned about characterization um, I don't know if that answers your question well, what, what was what was was there anything specific that was a, a challenge for you to figure out as a writer when you were in those years yeah I mean I think cons- just come easy to you um no 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 if anything the hardest thing and I'm still battling this is um concision <laughs> like <laughs> truly I mean like I because I the the work that I love writing and then later when I became a director the stuff I love directing a lot of times is like grounded in realism mm-hmm. or tries to mimic conversational patter sometimes they can go on long tangents right right and so something that really took a long time for me to learn and i'm like i said i'm still battling it but the, my latest play started at 160 pages and i just got it down to 95 you know like i i i write big i overwrite and then i sand it down um it came down to like hey by the third tangent in scene one man oh man you better be making a point or uh we're just gonna get bored like even even comedies, like at some point, it's like if comedy is sugar, at some point we're going to get a stomach ache. You know what I mean? Like parse out the laughs a little bit better. Pick your favorite laugh of these three because uh-huh. they're so close together. 
at some point we're going to get exhausted. So it was really about learning from them about how to cut and what to cut and what was important. I mean, it really was like something that seems so simple now, but that was a huge learning moment for me. It was like, okay, look at that scene on its own. Take a step back. What's important to you in this scene? Well, what's important to me is that we meet this father and this son. Okay, great. Anything that doesn't serve that, take it away. Does the scene still work? Well, yeah. Okay, cool. Do you need any of that stuff then? Well, no. Okay, then. There you go. You know, that's your first scene. It, it was just, it, it really was about overwriting and then deconstructing and realizing I was just talking too much. I think, uh, I mean, one of the things that I love about your writing is your ability to create an environment through an ensemble in a real natural like conversational way like Hmm. it'll feel like uh uh multiple conversations are happening simultaneously right and it creates a sense of environment Mm -hmm. uh that i love Mm -hmm. because it feels lived in right and it feels natural in a way that um you don't always get in a play because there's that there's that fourth wall. So I think without your without the play being meta theatrical, mm-hmm. it still creates a sense of like immersiveness, right? Because you have such a keen uh, ear for the way t- conversation happens in a space, hmm. and and uh, and I love that. And I get this. I understand like this <laughs> like overriding and needing to trim back and yeah. focus on you know what is essential for the moment. But but man, sometimes it's it's really great. Like you have you have that one that one play that's set in the backyard, kind of post like emerging from COVID time period. Oh, sick, sick. Yeah, I don't remember. I can't remember the title. But uh, there's so many people back there, and so many so many conversations kind of happening, and then pausing and continue. And uh, I mean, somebody could look at that and be like, this is overwritten. You need to focus uh, on what the conflicts and really, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I mean, it might just be like a preference, you know, personal preference for things or whatever. But I just like, I see that and I'm like, ah, I kind of love this. I, I, I that, Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. Yeah, yeah, sick. I'm, I'm retitling it The Burbs. I got to revisit that at some point because th- that that very much was a play of like, I just have a lot of pandemic thoughts. And yeah. so it became like, a huge journal entry yeah. that then became a family dark comedy. Right. Um, yeah. It's still taking shape. But I mean, honestly, what you're getting at is my love of ensemble, yeah. I think. I think that comes back from, as an actor, I just love being part of a really big, really supportive cast, right? Mm. As an actor, I just adored that. So I want to build those opportunities for other actors, right? My very first play, Merge, which is about the rise and fall of Atari, its world premiere here in Chicago had 16 actors. Mm-hmm. It was produced by this company called The New Coordinates. Again, another new play company that gave me way too much credit way too early in my career and just was so supportive from the get-go. An equity theater would not would have looked at a 16-person 16, yeah, 16 right. cast yeah. about video games and been like, pass you know but because they had so little to lose the new coordinates actually i had said can i have 12 people and they said can it be 16 you know what i mean and so for me i was like suddenly i was like being yes ended yeah, yeah um yeah. my second play plain clothes about security guards in a retail store 
has a cast of 11 currently, right? I'm, I'm already thinking about uh, paring down that play at some point to maybe a cast of nine. Like, that'll be the small version. Yeah. But, like, for me, it was always, it always came back to the on- ensemble. And what you're talking about in those scenes where characters are talking over one another, there's several conversations happening at once, two things are happening there. I think, one, as an audience member, and I'm sure folks who are listening could potentially feel similar, I kind of love that idea of uh, choose your own adventure. Like, I get to choose which part of the play to listen to right now. I, it's almost like that idea of, like, tuning in and out of radio frequencies. Mm. I'm going to listen to this for a little bit, and then I'm going to listen to that over there, and, like, oh, that's really funny. I feel like I caught a special little thing by listening to that stage left conversation, and now I'm going to tune over to stage right, where that character just overheard that word and misunderstood it. No, now now suddenly I'm in on something. There's like a little subplot, this little thread going through it. You know, I just, I like that feeling of capturing that electricity. Also, sometimes I feel like in our, in our day-to-day, sometimes it's not important what's being said. It's just important the fact that it's happening, right? Like the music of talking over each other. I just really love the the musicality of overlap sometimes too. So it's not I, I never want to use it as a gimmick. If it doesn't serve the moment, I I, I usually pare it down or I, yeah. I cut it out altogether. But when it serves the moment, when it makes you feel like you're at a party or at a barbecue in the case of yeah. the Burbs, um, or you're in the offices of Atari in the case of Merge, if it helps immerse you, that's really the reason it's there. It's just for that extra dose of immersion. Yeah. yeah. I I mean I. I think part of the reason I admire it, admire that style so much, is because, uh, like you, I'm not sure if I hit record yet when you were saying this, but we're talking about uh, playwrights who you like, who you would never write the way that they write. Sure. And when I have a couple larger cast plays, like mm. I have one that's twelve, one that's eight, but it, they're just like full of two-person scenes. Right. Right. Maybe there's a three-person scene in there somewhere. <laughs> I think one scene might be four, but like, that's just not. Uh-huh. It's not what I do. Yeah. It's not how I hear hear things. So when I see somebody else doing it in a different way, it really like it piques my interest. You know. But I think it draws me in. I, I will say though, like, I, I hear you when you say that, but I'm so jealous of playwrights like you, who can write a three-person scene, or in some cases your entire cast is three people. Mm. That's, a, again, that's another moment you were like, are there things that are still difficult for you? That's a level of concision I have not yet captured. My smallest cast that I've ever written is the Burbs, is like, what is that, seven people? That's, that's only seven? That's only seven, yeah. It feels like 15. Oh, really? <laughs> and I, like, that's not like a criticism at all. No, no. Because it, it feels... Oh, that's funny. It feels like so much... But but part of me, on. I know you look at it, look at it, and you're like, oh my gosh, these big group scenes. I wish I could write like that. I'm looking at your play. What's the what's the three per, the three hander that you have about the father who was a painter? Oh yeah, news for the deaf man. News for the deaf man. For me, I read something like news for the deaf man, and I don't, I don't know how you did it. Like I tr- I truly do not know. I feel like that's it kind of feels like a cousin to American Buffalo in a way. It's Mm. like these three men, there's like this undertone of violence. In your case, it's a painting. In Mamet's case, it was this Buffalo nickel, right? Like there is this object that they're, that all kind of orbiting around. Mm -hmm. 
I wish I could do what you do, right? And so there is this feeling of jealousy that I have, a very healthy kind of envy. Sure, yeah, yeah. Where I, I wish I could write that small play um, to the point now where I'm like, I'm promising my agent, like the challenge for my for the next several months is like, I told my agent, I was like, I have an idea for a three-hander and I have the idea an idea for a one-person show and I'm gonna write both. Those are my next two plays. And he's like, okay, yeah. we'll see. Because he's seen, like, he's seen me say that and then the cast is like nine people and he's like, "Is oh, this is one of your small plays. Huh? You know what I yeah. mean? Like, um, it's not just even about being produced at this point. It's not like, oh, I want to be producible. It's more of like, I want to, I want to do what you, Brian, do. You know, I want to do what Tracy Letts did in Killer Joe. Yeah. I want to do what Lynn did in like Intimate Apparel. What is that? I could be totally wrong. Is that like five or six? You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's Clyde's even. Clyde's is in comparison a cast of five or six yeah, right yeah. it's like unreal to me what she's able to pull off do with, you think yeah. do you think part of this is because you're in chicago uh-huh. like the city that really embraces the ensemble and this is where you learned craft sure yeah yeah i think you're right i think you totally tapped into it i think it was like because i learned by doing here in chicago and it it is known as an ensemble town. I think for me, I was like, um, I hear you and I raise you a cast of 16. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think I like, I think I leaned into what the city was already kind of promising. It's, it's new artists, you know, yeah. it's young artists. Well, um, and also, so Plain Clothes was your third play? Your no, that was my second. Your second play and Plain Clothes, I'm saying that title really carefully <laughs> because I feel like I have, I'll have a lisp. So uh, that won you a major award, didn't it? Wasn't yeah, it I I was a finalist for the Harold and Mimi Steinberg Award, and I won the M. Elizabeth Osborne Award for it, which <laughs> a friend of mine said is is they say it's for a new emerging playwright, but my friend was like, it is the award they give to this is the play outside of New York that we liked, but nobody knows who the writer is. <laughs> like that's, he was like, he's like, that's what the Osborne is. Take it though. But like, um, but I bring it up because I'm wondering <laughs> if like, you're writing this uh, 11 character yeah. play yeah. and you, you got this big recognition for it. It's yeah. like affirmation for writing this kind of play, right? At the very least, what it was affirmation for was like, maybe not writing like, large cast but just like hey you're on to something mm-hmm. right it's like hey your style this idea of finding a way to write work that has these societal these socio-political questions but you code it in like with plain clothes it's a workplace comedy for mm-hmm. example if you're able to like cook the vegetables in a way where we don't taste them right you hide these socio-political questions inside of what some would deem like an entertainment, quote unquote. For me, I thought, okay, cool. There, there is support for that approach to my work. Um, and, and on a scale like that, it was like so incredibly humbling. And to receive it for such an early play. Um, again, that was, a, that was a, the result of like the right critic who happened to be part of the American Theater Critics Association. Her name's Amanda Finn. I will totally give her credit. She was the one who recommended it. Um, 
And then, you know, uh, she was such a big supporter of mine. Because of that, I landed my agent um, who helped me land my managers. Like, I, uh, so much of it, so much of what has happened to me since, I attribute back to Amanda Finn submitting my work for consideration. Yeah, I mean, I've learned over the years that there, like, so much of this, uh, you know, theater industry that we're in, I'm not talking into the mic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should be, I should be a professional by now. Um, <laughs> so much of the theater industry we're in is about that right play yeah. at the right time in front of the right person. Can I also say, I mean, I think it, if it encouraged me, and I, I, I hope maybe some of your listeners who are, if any of them are having crisis of faith over whether or not they're like, am I doing it right? Or if they're asking like, how do I get myself an agent? First of all, that, that I know you've asked this question several times in the podcast. How do you get an agent? I will say right now, the agent will find you. Like, I know that's unsatisfying because you're like, so I have no control. And it's like, no, 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 you do. And here's how. What that taught me was you do you when no one's watching, mm-hmm. when you think nobody's paying attention. You know, Plain Clothes was performed for four weeks to a 50-seat house in one of five black boxes that are inside the Din Theater in Wicker Park in Chicago. Like, talk about the obscure of the obscure. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. But because I just went, you know what? This is going to be through and through the show that I want to write right now. That somehow shone through, you know? Um I would give that same encouragement to any listener who's maybe having that crisis of style of their own. That idea of like, write like nobody's watching because I guarantee somebody actually is and you have no idea who's in the audience, critic or otherwise, who can now be that person like you were just talking about, who can, whether you know it or not, help take you to whatever quote unquote that next level is for you. Yeah. Or who can say to their artistic director halfway across town, I saw this great play. We should keep an eye on this playwright. Like you have no idea the conversations that are being had about you in rooms you're not in. So as long as you continue to write material that feels true to what's important to you, I don't know. I feel like I'm a, I, I, I truly feel like I'm a case study for like, write like nobody's watching. Mm-hmm. True, Like truly write just write what you want to write if I had been afraid about being quote unquote producible I guarantee my first play would not have been the story of the rise and fall of Atari because of how big it felt because of how big a cast it would have required if I had tried to be strategic about it I still don't think my whatever that first play would have been I still don't think it would have been staged but because I was like you know what, I'm just going to pour all of my everything I'm excited about right now into this first play, I think that helped it, right? Yeah. Um, and the, the, even your work, Brian, like the work that I have read of yours that gets me so excited is the stuff that you were like, I wrote that one for me. Mm-hmm. And then it just so happened that somebody read it on New Play Exchange and then they left a comment and somebody saw that comment. You know what I mean? It's like, that. that's what's so exciting to me is just the idea of like, when it's pure, unfiltered you, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like the rewards will come, whatever reward means to you. Yeah. yeah. Um, does that make sense? I keep talking about concision and then I like talk forever, but you know, there you go. 
when the Osborne Award dropped, yeah, did you have this moment of like, ah, I did it? <laughs> like, like what happened? Like what? Like yeah, what was there like a psychological? Im- like I'm so curious to get into that moment if you can remember when it came to you. I'm trying to think about. I mean, it was so not on my radar at the time. This idea of like, first of all, you know, again. I did not write plain clothes to receive any recognition. I I wrote that play for a very specific cast of 11. Like, I was writing it for their voices. And now it's a play that stands on its own. But originally, I was writing for the ensemble I had already helped form um, in terms of that cast. Um, When the Osborne came through, it, it really did feel kind of like, one, it felt very very unreal because like they just told me through I thought like I would get like a phone call in the middle of the night but I just like received kind of like a an unassuming email that was like hey by the way you received an Osborne and you'll be coming to the Humana Festival in a few months and we'll Mm -hmm. fly you out and put you up in a hotel and I had to like whoa 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 you know I had to like actually like close the email walk away come back to it and be like wait I Oh, I didn't, I'm not, like, up for, like, I got it. I got the thing, like, it's done. Um, That felt really good. It also, if I'm being honest with you, too, um, that feeling of, like, at some point I was, like, if this never happens to me ever again, I'm actually kind of, like, satisfied now. Like, I got it, it almost felt like, oh, cool, this, like, Harold and Mimi Steinberg Award that I heard so much about. I'm a finalist for it now. Like, I, no one can ever take that from me. Right. And if it never happens for me again, I'm like, I'm actually grateful that it happened this early so it's not a car that I'm chasing for half my career, mm-hmm. you know? Um, it was really surreal. I and mean, then when I got up, it wasn't until I got up on the Humana stage where I, I knew literally no one. <laughs> I knew no one. Like, I, and I, I think I said something to the effect of, like, Hey y'all, nice to meet everyone, or something like you know what I mean, like something like that, because it it really did feel kind of like I still felt a little bit like oh, like I'm here getting an award, but like y'all out there, you're the real playwrights. <laughs> I still don't, I still don't totally feel like I have my bona fides. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I feel like I. Oh yeah. I think a little bit of that is like I've seen too so many people come out of grad school with all of these networking connections. I've seen so many people like yourself, like get Kennedy honors, you know? It's like, for me, I, I didn't, I never went that route. Yeah. Um, so it's taken me a very long time to feel like I deserve to call myself a playwright. Mm-hmm. Um, even so, even getting that award, it felt kind of like, hey, let me just say a few words and I'll, I'll leave you all alone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it kind of felt, sorry to bother you. <laughs> sorry to bother you. Um, <laughs> nice to, n- nice to meet just everybody. So you know, they asked me to <laughs> yeah, be right, here. Right. I didn't just like, I'm not just wandering on stage <laughs> here. Like it got to the point where like, I tried to hang out at the after party for like 10 minutes and I knew no one. And so I just kind of like <laughs> slinked off to my hotel room. Like I'm not a socially anxious person, yeah, right. but it felt like I felt like I, I truly felt like I was invited to a party that I didn't belong at, you know? Yeah. So I, I that's, that's really, if you want me to be honest, that's how it really felt. Um, so. We're going to keep talking, but okay. I definitely feel the pressure of football practice that's starting. Oh, so okay. uh, we're just going to pause for a second. Yeah, of course. Um, I want to try something I've never done before. Okay. I want to see if we can walk and talk. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Uh, so it's going to be weird to manage stuff, but I think we can figure it out. Cool. 
just going to hold the <laughs> mic to my face till then. Um, I think I always feel the pressure to like drop nuggets of wisdom about like, here is my philosophy about the arts, you know? Right. Um, because you have so many wise people on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually I met a I met a playwright in in New York just the other day, um, and I'm very much interested in uh, interviewing them one day. Uh-huh. And I said that, and they were like, "No." <laughs> they said, "No, you don't want to talk to me." You know, uh, and I think it was a sense of like I'm not accomplished enough right. for you to talk to me. Yeah, and that's not how I see it. I want to talk to everybody because I want every sort of like perspective uh-huh. and and t- type of career and everything sort of like on record in a way. Yeah, you know? totally. I mean, I I early on I still kind of feel this. I feel like I haven't written. Enough plays, like quite literally, I, I I treat it like quantity equals quality, which is so not the case. Right. I mean, I only have like technically, I only have like five plays, one audio drama, and one like virtual play that I wrote. I don't like calling it a Zoom play because for me, like that puts a bad taste in folks' mouths, and I right. feel like it kind of like we tried to elevate it beyond that, but. I don't have that many plays, and I, I think that's another reason why I, I always felt like I was faking my way through it in a way. Because it felt like, well, I, I've seen people write more in grad school than I've written in 12 years, you know what I mean? And so, Don't you think it's kind of a trap, though, to compare yourself to, you know, the careers of other writers? A hundred percent. Oh, my gosh. Like, oh, the idea of so-and-so has accomplished this much in this amount of time, I need to replicate that. It kind of goes counterintuitive to everything that has, like, gone right for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you were asking about the Osborne earlier. If I had written a play to win the Osborne, I would not have won the Osborne, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, there is that feeling of, like, had you written a play trying to, like, receive a Kennedy Center honor... Right. I don't know. I think there's something about like that desperation. You can smell it. You can smell it on the material, or it feels cookie cutter in a way that takes away all of your individuality. Yeah. So for me, absolutely, the idea of comparing yourself is like it's it's. I mean, it really is like death creatively. Yeah. Because it takes away any spontaneity. If you try to calculate your career, it never. At least in my experience, it never works. The times I've ever it's made rare. strategic moves, um, quote unquote, uh, it's always it's always bit me. It's it's always come back to haunt me because it never pans out the way that I want it to. Whereas when I'm just writing, you know what, this play's just gonna be for me. That's the one that a theater will respond to because they go, oh, there's something so, oh, there's something alive here. There's something interesting and and juicy here and it's because I actually wrote it at a time when I cared about it as opposed to I need to write a three-hander that someone can produce and that can right. travel regionally do you do you feel like you're still in a in a place where you're writing for yourself I think so yeah, yeah I, I think thankfully you know um even I know I was joking earlier about like oh I owe my agent a three-hander and a one-person show even those and it took me a long time to think, like, do I have one of those in me? 
but but for you the way you write how you write like those plays become writing challenges right? yeah 100 like, percent. like can i do this how do i yep. pull this off yep exactly and it needs to be I, I i don't know i know that writers a lot of the times like hate answering the question where do your ideas come from but for me i mean i i, I know where they come from right it never it never starts with like a character i'm interested in at the end of the day what it really is is like what's a story told in a unique way that i've actually never seen before like for me i i cannot write that play of like family comes home for thanksgiving tensions mount you know right. what i mean like i just can't my version of that is the play that you were talking about which was called sick now called the burbs which is like it's a it's a new year's eve play right, right. and it's a family getting together after two years of quarantine you know what i mean right. like that's the closest i will ever get to writing the quintessential Thanksgiving play, for example. Like, it always needs to have some kind of twist for me that makes me go, okay, ooh, I've never seen or read that before. So that will make me pursue it. If somebody tells me, if I start working on a play, and somebody goes, oh my God, that is just like, insert other place title, and then I read that play and realize it is, I'll stop writing right. that play. Because yeah. I don't, I never want to be the second play about that thing. Or that's going to chase the life of that that comparison is going to chase your play. I, uh, part of the goes. reason that I finished yeah. Merge is because I was like, I want to be the first playwright to tell the story of Atari on stage. <laughs> part of me was like, if someone else gets to it, actually my spouse says this really, said this really great thing when I was working on Merge that I have used as my guiding principle ever since, which is they said, I was like, what's my, what's my next play about? And they said, what's the idea that you have that if you open Deadline tomorrow and saw that somebody else had gotten to <laughs> it, you'd be upset about. And I was like, what a great, simple way of like, oh, what so funny. What yeah. idea do you not want to slip through your fingers? Write that play next, right? Like, what's most valuable to you? For me, I was like, I don't want ever, I, I want to be the first one to write about Atari. I, I do not want to be the second playwright writing about undercover security guards in a retail store. Right. I want to write the first play, you know? So it's always been about like, for for me, I don't want to be like the gold prospector tailing the group that's already found all the gold there is. Yeah, you know what right. I mean? Like, I want to be there as early as possible. It's so funny. I literally just had that deadline experience oh, recently. No. Uh, it turned out to be okay, okay. But I had written, I'd already written a play, and it was several years ago, uh, about... It's basically a time travel play where people go back in time to save themselves from abuse. Oh wow! So wow. adult, an adult brother and sister go back in time to save young versions of themselves. Oh, very cool. Um, and then I see this headline about a movie called The Adam Project on Netflix with uh, oh, what's the guy's name? He plays Deadpool. Oh, Ryan Reynolds? Ryan, yeah, starring Ryan Reynolds. Oh, no. As, as he goes back in time to oh. and meets his younger self. And I was like, <laughs> no! But then I watched the movie, and, and it's, like, very sci-fi. Okay, And got my it. movie is, like, natural. I mean, my play is, like, natural world. But I had that moment where I was like, <laughs> no, it's happened. So, so like, beyond that very quick log line, they are very different projects. 100% different and would never be compared to Do each other. Do you think, had it been almost identical to your play, 
Yeah. Would you have stopped writing that play, or do you think you would have written well, it anyway? Well, the play's already written. Oh, it is. Oh, wow. It's okay. already written. Got it. Um, I would have uh, re- probably removed it from the world. Yeah. Because I would have been like, it's just going to be like, oh, you saw that movie. Yeah, and yeah. And decided to write that play. Right. No, the play came five years earlier. <laughs> right. But, like, it doesn't matter. Uh-huh. Right? Because that's a movie. So, so anyway, like, that's the first thing I thought of when you were like, I don't want to see Deadline. Yeah. yeah. I, I well, again, I, I totally credit my spouse for that because it, it's been such a guiding principle for me, that idea of, because it does, it makes you size up all the ideas that are in your notebook. You know, everybody has that notebook yeah. of ideas that they carry around with them. And it makes you go, honestly, at this moment right here, what's the one calling to me? What's the one, quite frankly, what's the one that's most valuable to me? in this moment that I'm in now. Yeah. Um, what's the one that I'm ready to write right now and also has that sheen that I don't want someone else to get to first. Yeah. Um, and then because of that, I feel like if you approach your work in that way, I think your excitement and your hunger for the material, I think it comes through on the page, which I, I think is really helpful in somebody saying, you know, somebody reading it as a sample and going, oh my gosh, like I feel like I totally captured your voice. Like, I, I got a total sense of who you are and what's important to you. It isn't because, like, oh, your brilliance popped up. It's really because, like, you were so excited. You were scrambling to tell this story. There was such a hunger and such a need to tell that story now. Yeah. And, and I think that's what comes through to your readers. So when I moved to Chicago a few years ago, I, I, I came to know who you are as both a director and a playwright simultaneously. Mm. When did the directing become part of your your repertoire, however you want to say it, your yeah. career? Like, were I you mean, directing in college? No, 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 no. I didn't even go to... In college, I didn't do theater. Um, I, I, I just went to... Again, it was that idea of, like, I just need a degree. In college, I just went for creative writing. Mm-hmm. I didn't even write plays in college outside of what I was doing at Chicago Dramatists. Like, I never wrote one for assignment. No, I mean, for me, directing really started when I read a play called From White Plains by Michael Perlman, and I was too young to be in it, but I could see it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, is that what a, is that what a director does? <laughs> like, I think, I think that's what a director does. I, I can really see the show, and I, I, I can feel how it should be paced. And I think I can make it really tight. And so I, I actually ended up, what I, two things happened simultaneously. One, I realized, well, no one's just going to hand me a main stage without experience, right? Rightly so, yeah. you know. Um, so I started directing for every single festival in town that would have me. I emailed every single company that had a 10-minute uh, a play festival. And I said, hey, do you need directors? Like, I would love to get my feet wet. And several people said, yes, we do, as a matter of fact. And it became like that became my training. That became my literal on the job training. So that by the time I cracked into From White Plains at a company that I was part of for a decade called Broken Oaks Theater here in town, um, I I felt confident directing a show. I went from being an actor turned playwright to an actor turned playwright turned director who, because I was an actor, knew how to talk to actors in a certain way. So I I found that I already had the vocabulary to talk about it, Um, which was super helpful. Uh, But yeah, I think it it came down to that. I felt like I I also, at the same time, I I started um, assistant directing 
for a director here in town named Shade Murray, um, who has since gone on to be become one of my best friends, and he was the best man at my wedding. But at the time, I honestly saw a show that he directed at Steep Theater here in Chicago, and I, I Facebook messaged him, and I said, Hi, Shade, my name is Spencer. Again, going back to this mm-hmm. presumptuous, like, what could it hurt? The least he can do is not answer. Um, the, that's the worst that can happen. So I said, Hey, my name is... You know Spencer Davis. I'm. I, I think I want to direct my my own first full length in you know next spring. Um, this was the winter before. In this was the winter of tw- 2013, um, and I directed From White Plains in February of 2014. But in the winter of 2013, I said, Hey, I you know I saw your show. I would love to sit down and just like talk about if you do you need an assistant director for your next production if so i would love to be in the room mm-hmm. you know i would love to just watch you work and he he graciously again going back to that somebody giving me the time of day and willing to kind of do what somebody probably did for them at some point and pull me up the ladder a little bit um he gave me a couple hours of his time and we be we just realized like we were really simpatico he was really big he still is really big on directing very hyper realistic work so that mm-hmm. idea of like that overlap that conversational pattern reflecting on stage human behavior that we'll recognize in the audience um as our own behavior these are all things that i really learned from him that then i just started applying to my own work mm-hmm. um so yeah and the long and short of it is between directing for all of those festivals finding a play that i couldn't be in but that i could see and 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 being mentored by Shade, I think those three things combined twisted so, themselves up into get me what, where I am now. Was the yeah. was the motivation really like you just want to keep you want to just want to stay in the game and keep making stuff like? Yeah, I think I think that's it. I think there was there were I was I was finding more and more plays that I couldn't be in that clearly I couldn't write because it was already written. But I was like, but I still want to be involved in the telling of them. Um, and so that's really what it became right at, at some point i just found like oh i think i i'd read plenty of plays that i loved but that i just could tell my sensibilities weren't right for so i would hand them off to other directors i knew and i'm like you really need to read this i think it would be great for you yeah but when i would find a play that would benefit from my approach to naturalism or hyperrealism, whatever you want to call it i would i would sink my teeth in and go like oh i think i actually think this plays Chicago production would benefit from having someone like me at its helm, right? Being conscious of what my limitations were as an artist also helped me realize, like, when I found that play that I would be the right director for, like, I seized it, and I would not let anyone else touch it. You know, I became very... I became very territorial about it in, in the healthiest way possible. Which I think is... Well, I think that's very common, yeah, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Across yeah. the industry. Yeah, exactly. So you said uh, a while back... Uh, that when you when you won the Osborne yeah. award, that uh, if nothing else, I can't now. I can't remember exactly how you phrased, but basically, like if nothing else happens, like I'm good. Totally. How, so f- a few years have passed now. Mm-hmm. How do you see that? Honestly, the- I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I still, I still stand by that feeling of when I'm in a room of playwrights. I still don't feel like I have the bona fides to be there all the time, you know? Mm. Not in a way that, like, makes me self-conscious. I just feel like, oh, I'm a different thing. Like, I'm a, 
I am a storyteller, and I'm like, yes, I am writing plays, but like y'all are capital P playwrights, and like I want to do what you do. How do you how do you write that three hander? Like, what was grad school like? You know, yeah. I'm not a good student, so I'm not going to go experience it myself. But like, what was your experience like? So so there's that. Second of all, I do look at the Osborne as like the reason I met my agent. Like news of the Osborne hit his radar. His name's Luke Verkstis at WME, and he he found me, and he emailed me and said, hey, I would I would love to read Plain Clothes and one other play that you have. He's like, if I could read two of your plays, that would be great. He had no idea that I only had two plays in total. <laughs> you know, I only had Merge, and I only had Plain Clothes. So I sent him both, um, and it felt, it felt good. So really, I mean, when I look back at the Osborne, I see it as like, the start of my relationship with him. But right now, yeah. Do you? This is basically my success question. Okay, great. For you, yeah. So in that moment, uh, you felt like a success. Like you did it. You did a thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. What is so? Has the uh, this idea of success changed for you in the years since then? I think it has. Yeah. So I mean. I'll use this as an example. Like, as a playwright, I've won the Osborne Award. As a director, I won this award we have here in Chicago called the, the, the Jeff Award. I won the Best Director Award for a show I directed in 2017 called At the Table. It was, it was the third show, the third main stage production I'd ever directed. A- and then I, you know, uh, two years ago, I got the Maggio Directing Fellowship at the Goodman. Those were all, like, the mile markers that I dreamed of hitting ever, right? I got the Osborne on my second play, got the Jeff for my third. Every single time, there was this feeling of not, like, self-gratification, but, like, thank God, if I was to get it, I'm so glad I got it early. Mm. So that chasing of that accolade isn't what's driving me anymore. Like, not that it ever was. But, like, I would hate... uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck actually say this really interesting thing about, like, winning the Oscar for writing Good Will Hunting, their very first screenplay together, you know? And they were like... The next day, they're like, thank God I'm not chasing that anymore. And I feel very similarly. Like, the moment I heard them say that, I was like, I know that feeling. Um, So, for me, success now isn't in the form of a trophy or isn't in the form of a fellowship. For me, success now would be getting to a place where... 100% of my income comes from the art that I'm making. Mm -hmm. I haven't yet reached that Mm -hmm. point. I'm still teaching to supplement it. I'm still writing monologues for acting classes to supplement it. Thankfully, I have a spouse who is holding down a day job of their own. (laughs) You know, that Mm -hmm. helps supplement it and helps pay the rent. I'm always paying my half, but Mm -hmm. it still feels good to know, like, I'm on their insurance, but I cannot wait. The day I will truly feel successful is when 100% of my income is coming from my writing. And, like, I don't know. We're getting health insurance through, like, my membership with the Writers Guild of America or something. You know what I mean? Like, that will be success for me. So it's felt really good to know, like, livelihood is the next metric and not some weird award or some unobtainable fellowship. Like I'm, I'm grateful to not be chasing the glittery thing anymore. Mm -hmm. Does that make any sense? For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's, it's probably the one question that's, I ask more than any other 
And I don't think I've heard the same answer twice. Yeah, right. Sure. Do you feel successful right now? No. I don't know. I know I just said, like, success will be when I do this, even when I reach that point. Yeah. I think for us writers, for us artists and storytellers, I feel like we're always in process. Like, we're always writing the next thing, or we're always in the middle of things. Like, we're okay, I just finished one play. Now I have another idea. I think I don't... If I were to sit back and be like, I am successful now, that would feel like I was pumping the brakes on... In, like, in the middle of something. I don't know that I'll ever feel like I am now successful, right? Um, I think I will feel degrees of success, but... I don't know. It always feels like as soon as I finish one thing, I'm like, oh, there's two more. Ah, there's two more drafts of something that I owe somebody else. And I'm on to the next thing. Like, I don't have time to sit back and be satisfied, Mm. Um, which I get a feeling is probably like having listened to dozens of episodes of the subtext. I I am curious how many of those playwrights percentage wise, like feel similarly, like they finish one thing and they're on to the next immediately, or they at least know I know what the next thing will be, even if I give myself a vacation, you know? Um, well, yeah. I think it's, I think it is uh, very common uh, for even everybody sees themselves differently. And yeah. we're all uh, on a continuum. I say that often we're on a continuum right. and every playwright uh, that I've talked to uh, talks about how they don't feel successful yet. Yeah. And, uh, we're talking, I, I've heard this out of the mouths of people who've won Pulitzer Prizes. That's wild, right? Know? Isn't that wild? Uh, and and they're not being, I don't think they're being dishonest or modest. No. It's just the way, it's, it's the artistic mind. I know? think that's it. It's like, I think we, I think when people ask that question, in my mind at least, I picture like someone sitting at the edge of their kingdom, like beholding all they have created and just like, being done like I don't know there's like something about like something being completed in order to look back on a on a life um I I uh, yeah I think it's because and it's funny to hear you say that like Pulitzer Prize winners feel this way I get it it's like no I don't on to the next thing right and again like I said there will be little like there will be little like doses of success i'm like ooh, that felt good like little doses of dopamine you know when i'm like oh that mm. felt really good to like that felt good to win the osborne that felt good to get an agent but the moment i got the agent i was like well now i want managers the moment i got managers i was like well now i want a tv deal the moment i signed for a tv deal i'm gonna be like well when's somebody gonna pick up my tv show like you know right. what i mean i yeah i, yeah. I yeah. think it's i actually think it's healthy to move the mile marker for yourself to move the goalpost because to stop and like drink it in I don't know as to like yeah I don't know there's just something about it that I feel like you're you're I don't believe in like momentum right take the breaks you need for your mental and emotional well-being but yeah I don't think I'll ever reach that point where it's like cool the end I did it right I feel like for every single person you've interviewed, I, I, I would suspect that the majority of them will be, like, in the middle of writing the next thing when they finally die. You know what I mean? Like, they will be in process until the day they die, and then people will go, 
Oh, man. The unfinished Lynn Nottage play. Oh, man. The unfinished Brian James Pollock play. You know what I mean? Like, I think there, it will, then that will gain its own legend. I was so glad to finally be able to connect with Spencer and record this conversation. I have so much admiration for him, his work, and his ethic. His spouse is also a damn fine actor who I want to be in pretty much every play I write. Thank you, Spencer, for giving me some time to chat on the mics. Thank you also to Rob Weiner-Kent, Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre Magazine. I always appreciate you sticking with the subtext. The music from this episode is from Corey Gray. The theme song for the subtext is by International Pen Pal. This episode was produced and edited by me, the excellent KJ Jarbo, as the associate producer for the subtext. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Tragedy Averted by Alexandra Petri. I think I'm pronouncing the last name correctly. P-E-T-R-I. It looks like Petri or Petri, um, but Alexandra, Alexandra Petri. This play is hilarious. She takes Shakespeare's tragic heroines, Cordelia, Desdemona, Juliet, and Ophelia, and places them in summer camp, where they get to deal with the challenges in their lives. I love it. 